الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على We are in Surah Fatah, Surah number 48, ayah number 3. Surah Allah Nasran Aziza. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given this victory at Hudaybiyah to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the consequence is that he forgives all of his sins, past and present, and that he completes his ni'mah and his favor upon him. And then thirdly, that he guides him towards a straight path, meaning in the dealings with the Quraysh and the uh, pagan Arabs, Allah has guided the Prophet ﷺ towards a path that's going to lead him towards, you know, success and peace. And finally, when Surah Allah Nasran Aziza, so that Allah may support and assist you in a very powerful way. Nasran Aziza, Aziz him is powerful and mighty. And so on. So the powerful way to assist the Prophet وسلم, is to establish his authority in the Jazeera, in the peninsula, and then also to allow people to come into the fold of Islam and establish peace, tranquility in the Islamic order and guidance in the peninsula. So these are tangible ways in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is assisting the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Assisting him means assisting his deen, assisting his sahaba, his companions, and assisting in the promotion of universal welfare. That's Allah's help to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi But all of this is premised on the fact that he is purified. So when the Nabi is purified to the highest extent, then the manad, the fairs, the nur of Allah comes down as a result of that purification. Okay, so in Islamic ideology, the result is always based on the purity and the, uh, what do you call it, infallibility of the Nabi, of the Rasul. Uh, the more the Rasul raises his ranks and uh, becomes closer to Allah, uh, the more that is cast down upon people. And the same way with the Sahaba. So the Tazkiyah of the Sahaba, meaning purifying the Sahaba, uh, is the reason why the Sahaba were successful in the dunya. So you have to invert the paradigm. So the real reason why the Hudaybiyah Treaty is a fatah, an opening, is that it's an opening for the Prophet Hence in the ayah, inna fatahna laka, we have opened for you. So unless the Prophet is 
opened in the spiritual realm with his Tuskia and purification, it will not come down to the level of people. So it's not subjective. It is realistic where the benefit of the Prophet comes to all human beings. So if the Prophet Sallallahu Ni'mah and his uh, blessing, his gift is perfected, that means mankind's gift is also perfected. One doesn't happen without the other. Okay, so the cause is that Allah opened the Prophet Sallallahu heart Mubarak, his conscious, his subconscious, his spiritual abilities, and gave him the tawfiq to do salat and tasbih and dhikr, which is coming later. All of these are the real reasons for Muslims to be successful in this world. So you don't have to invert the paradigm. Uh, unfortunately, westernized system of thinking makes us think and believe that if Muslims are successful in the world, then they will be successful, period. That is not true. Mm. So here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala giving the Prophet وسلم, uh, this huge ability to be foresighted based on his patience, sabr, mm, that the Prophet was restraining himself from showing anger and displeasure by conceding to this treaty and showing that he's not there to hurt people and showing foresightedness is the reason why Islam flourishes. So this is all about the Prophet So it's not just about Hudaybiyah and it's not just about how Muslims behave. This is Prophet-centric. Islam is Prophet-centric. We have to believe that in our hearts and our minds. And that's why Salat al-Nabi opens up many doors in so many different ways. Because you're sending salam to the Prophet you will get these blessings. Whoever sends one salat to me, one salam to me, he will receive ten salat and salam. And that is Prophet-centric. It's not philosophy-centric. It's not ideology Ideology centric. Uh, it is not Islam centric. It is prophet centric. It's all about the Prophet, as you will see at the end of the surah also. Well, yeah. So we must appreciate this so that we change our thinking and we change our paradigm. So the more Muslims are purified, the more Islam will spread. And the less Muslims are purified, the less Islam will spread. So it is interconnected. Our actions are Iman are the reason why Allah governs and controls the way he governs and controls. Okay. So if you want a good government, you have to be good in the first place. Yes, sir. You can't just complain about the leader. The leader is corrupt. Yeah, he may be corrupt, but what about you? What's your role in the equation? So that's al-deen al-nasiha. The Prophet said the deen is all based on good counsel and thinking good for everybody. Not just the ruler, for Allah, the Rasul, for the ruler, for Muslims, even for uh, the slave who's working for his master. He has to be good. So there's a direct correlation between Muslims being good and their dunya being good. Their dunya cannot be good if they're not good. Very simple. 
So we, we must appreciate this because this is all about the Prophet Laka. We have opened for you, not for the Ummah, for you. Because you are the Ummah. Basically, you are the macro chasm of the Ummah. And the Ummah is the micro. Again, you flip the paradigm. You don't think that the Ummah is macro and the Prophet is micro. That that's Khilaf al Adab. You can't say that. So here we see that he has given you this opening and this victory so that he can help you. Not the Ummah. Allah wants to help you, O Muhammad, because you are the pivot of the world. You are the Qutb of the world and everything revolves around you. So if you are helped, then Islam is helped. And the Ummah is helped. And Islam will flourish and Muslims will flourish. And this is how you get this fatah, this opening of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And hence the next ayah. Okay, so you'll see now the segue into the next ayah is very logical, very normal, very natural. And especially it's very rational. الذي أنزل السكينة في قلوب المؤمنين ليزدادوا إيمانا مع إيمانهم ولله جنود السماوات والأرض وكان الله عليما حكيما زهي الله سبحانه says he is the one who has sent down sakina sakina is one of the the difficult words in Arabic especially in the Quran to translate into English roughly Peace, tranquility, but those are the effects of Sakina, not Sakina itself. Sakina is a force, a power that drives the Iman of believers to different levels, as this eye is also saying. Sakina is now a total conviction in Allah's presence and in the Prophet's truthfulness, which then flows into a person's being and a person's life. So if a person has sakina, he, he will be unflinching, he will be unshakable. But at the same time, he will not be unhappy. So what is needed the sakina is that it brings you your pleasure, your happiness, which is one of the ultimate goals of human being and human existence. So Sakina gives you one of the sense of um, uh, enjoyment with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's presence. So you're present with Allah, Allah is present with you. And that, that translates into tranquility. It's much more than tranquility. Um, we can't explain it in words, but inshallah, Allah gives us all Sakina. So this Sakina from the word Sukun which means you're calm, you're relaxed, and you're stable. So you're stable as a mountain. That nothing can move you, nothing can shake you, and you're happy with who you are, what you are. In the psychological sense, in the intellectual sense, in the spiritual sense, and perhaps even in the physical sense. You're not just okay. You're very happy being Muslim. There's nothing in the world that can change your mind and heart against Islam. And even if you don't understand one or two things, you're happy, you're not, you don't understand. Right? Sometimes Muslims are confused. <laughs> and when they're confused, they get angry. And when they get angry, they rebel. When they rebel, they leave Islam. So this is the antithesis of that uh, disturbance, confusion that people have. So when you have sukun and sakina, 
You are no longer confused about anything because you're sure about Allah's existence and more than that, Allah's presence. You're sure about his presence with you and in you. And that surety, that conviction then translates into you being who you are. So you're not swayed, uh, neither by events or world events and all of that. The Quran gives you this now picture of uh, the day of judgment or before the day of judgment when the qiyamah occurs in this dunya. So you're observing now the mountains floating in the air like dust. So you're observing this as a reader of the Quran, you're observing this. Are you supposed to? And you see people flying here and there. And the sun, the moon, the stars all come and colliding with each other and the earth being, and the world being destroyed, as we know it. So that iman there of the qiyamah gives you the stability that Allah is still there. So in that situation where the world has been destroyed and destructed, you still have iman. That's how unflinchable a Muslim becomes, not stubborn. There's a difference between being having iman and faith, which is unshakable, and being stubborn. Stubbornness has different effects and consequences, where stubbornness will make you rude and arrogant and violent, where this level of iman will make you calm, calm you down. You're not agitated by anyone and anything. So this is what Allah is saying, that after they were almost forced to agree and at least acquiesce to the treaty, which on paper was unfavorable to the Muslims, where the Muslims' hearts could have been shaken, Allah says, no. He's the one who sent down Sakina to the believers so that they're not shaken even by the apparent concession of the Prophet in the hearts of believers. So this lesson of Hudaybiyyah must be extended to everybody on the planet at every time that you're not shaken by events and political treaties and political dialogue or whatever is occurring in the world and, you know, all the injustices that are uh, kind of meted out against Muslims in the world, that your iman is not shaken because of that. In fact, your iman should be increased because of that, which is what the next part of the ayah says. لِيَزْدَادُوا إِمَانًا ma iman. So that their iman increases with their iman. You really have iman, more iman, more sukoon and more conviction that the truth will prevail. So that you're always looking forward, you're not looking backwards. And instead of saying that I'm now a victim of society, you now look at being a champion of your own fate. You become a champion of your own destiny because you have iman. Allah is there, Allah is with me. He's going to open a way. He's going to open a path, whether it's this world or the other world. It doesn't matter when and where it happens, but it will happen. Okay, so your iman is now fortified, it's consolidated, it increases, and you are at more uh, peace with Allah and your Creator than anything else, anyone else. So that's the point of this surah, is to show Muslims in the future that uh, before you start uh, shaking and trembling and pointing fingers at each other, you must see that this is not the way 
Allah made the Prophet Sallallahu is not the way Allah made the Sahaba. Okay. At this time, the Sahaba, because of the love for the Prophet Sallallahu had no intention, inclination whatsoever of mutiny. And take this from the point of view of a general in a war, in a battle, or some a captain of a ship, and the sailors disagree with the captain, or these people who are soldiers, they disagree with the commander. There's always a danger of mutiny. There's always danger of sabotage. And there's always a danger of backstabbing. So the Sahaba came together for the Prophet ﷺ, which is the most prominent victories for the Prophet. It's another victory for the Prophet. That this Hudaybiyah tested the Sahaba's love for the Prophet, and they succeeded. No one failed. They didn't like the treaty or the agreement, but they acquiesced. It is what it is. He is the Rasul of Allah. And we have to move forward and not start to sit down and analyze and reanalyze right, what it is that happened. They didn't have time for that. Uh, yeah. I mean, they were disappointed they couldn't do Umrah. They were disappointed they couldn't go and see their fellow you know, people in Mecca. And they were disappointed for many other reasons. But bis- despite being disappointed, they were not disappointed in the Prophet Sallallahu you understand there's a difference that you may disagree with a certain policy, but you can't disagree with a policy maker. Like in Islam and Sharia, you may disagree with what you think is Allah's law, but you can't be in disagreement with Allah Himself because that's kufr. You can't disagree, you can't say, I disagree with God. Okay, good luck with that fight. Right? So you have to separate all of this so that you understand that this is a help that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided to the Prophet to show the Prophet that his, his, his people, his supporters, are one. They're united. But a treaty like this could have very easily disunited the Sahaba. Very easily on paper. There would have been splinter groups if it was somewhere else on the planet. And human history tells you that. You hear all of these stories of rebellion and, uh, you know, moving into splinter groups and mutiny and all of that. But this is now that Allah gave the Sahaba Sakina, where nothing would shake their Iman, not even Hudaybiyah. Um, that's how much they love the Prophet And their Iman increased. So this ayah is about the believers. The previous four ayat were for the Prophet and this ayah is speaking about the believers, as is the next one. So you see now Allah is addressing the Sahaba, that this is who they are, and this is what we made them. To Allah alone belongs all the um, you know, armies of the heavens and the earth. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has many armies, and one is armies on the earth, armies in the heaven, armies in the sea, armies in the universe floating around, and so on. No one knows the armies of your Lord except him. So this ayah is affirming that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala controls and governs 
whatever there is in the universe in creation. But he governs and rules through his ways, not just what is perceivable to man. So man's perception is limited at best. And then if you have iman, your perception is heightened simply because you have iman. How so? When you say, I believe in angels, what have you done? You have now testified to a whole network of Allah's servants who do things for Allah. Your iman, you're testifying that you believe in angels. I believe in his angels. When you believe in his angels, you have opened your observation to a whole universe of creation, which if you have kufr, you're going to hide that. Kufr means to hide. So a kafir hides all the glories of Allah. Everything that Allah creates, he's hiding. Because the kafir's observation is limited to this dunya, this mundane dunya, what he sees, what he feels, what he perceives, what he hears, what he senses, what he tastes, and so on, is limited. And then sometimes what he thinks. So you have the rational perception, conception also. But even that is limited to the physical world. You can't go abstract and think about other forms of creation, but Iman opens that door wide open. So your knowledge expands immediately with Iman, instantaneously. Now you say, there's a whole set of another creation Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, and he employs them, and he uses them to do errands for him and to fulfill his message and deliver his message and do this and do that, the whole network. If you study the ayat of uh, the Qur'an that mentions the angels, you have a whole, whole new discussion, whole new inner universe to explore. And we know they exist because of our iman. So iman is to approve the existence of something you don't see. That's iman bil ghayb. Iman of the unperceivable, Iman of the unseen, Iman of the unthinkable. So here Allah says that in Hudaybiyah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used other forces that he has under his control and that you can't see. وَلِلَّهِ جُنُودُ السَّمَاوَاتِ To Allah alone belongs all these forces, all these armies and these troops. That's, how, that's on earth also. In the heavens, both of them. The Prophet saw them on his Isra and Miraj, all of them, and he had access to them even before the Miraj, and he had more access to them after Medina and after Hudaybiyah. So he saw uh, through his eyes what was happening in the treaty, and you must believe that, and that's why you believe in the Prophet, because his senses are much more heightened than ours. His understanding is much greater than ours, and his iman is much greater than ours. So we relinquish our observation to his observation, which is the meaning of Islam. That's when you believe in the Rasul, So if he made a statement, you have to believe it. You can't argue with it. You can say, I don't understand it. But when he makes a statement and says, this is the way Allah is, and this is what's going to get you into Jannah, and this is what's going to get you into Jahannam, then you have to believe that. 
You can't argue because you don't know, because you don't see, you don't perceive, you don't understand, you don't think. Okay, so your total Islam is your total submission to the Prophet Sallallahu knowledge. Be that through the Quran or be that through Hadith or the Sunnah. That is your Iman. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all knowledgeable and he, all, he is all wise. So he will introduce you to knowledge through Iman. He may not introduce you to knowledge through your senses. That's part of his divine wisdom. Hmm. Yeah. If we were to see what he saw, we go cuckoo. <laughs> because we can't tolerate that observation. Right? Yeah. If, he, if you see an angel, you die, basically, because you can't observe. You don't have the sense perception. You don't have the ability. You don't have the tolerance, the hilm, to see what a Nabi sees. So he keeps you basically in the dark, so to speak, so that you don't die, and you don't faint, and you don't become unconscious. Well, the Prophet Asim fainted, as you know, the first time, almost the second time, that he saw Jibreel on the horizon. Meaning, that's a tall order, to see what you cannot see and what you're not able to see. You'll see it when you die, you'll see it in the grave, you'll see it on the Day of Judgment, you'll see it in Jannah. Uh, you see all of these things, all of these relative maghibat, they call them, the relative uh, hidden realities of the earth and of the heavens. There will be a place when you see, but in this world you will see that is part of Allah's hikmah, his design, that he doesn't want you because you will not believe even then which is what uh, the Quraysh and the pagan Arabs and all other disbelievers before the Prophet ﷺ, they wanted to see miracles. But when miracles came, they did not believe. Even after observing Allah's might and power, they didn't believe. They refused to believe. That was based on stubbornness. Hmm? Uh, the people of Saleh wanted a she-camel uh, that was now pregnant, uh, made from a rock. So when Salih delivered, they didn't believe it. Hmm? So through Allah's hikmah, eternal hikmah and wisdom, he doesn't want you to see some signs and some proofs. He wants you to believe because you love him. And he wants you to believe the Prophet because you love him, not because you necessarily agree with him. So agreement and love are two very different issues. Uh, one is much more superior than the other. If you believe the Prophet and you love him, then you will take everything he said. But if you don't, then you won't. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using that he is all knowledgeable, he knows everything eternally, and he is also hakim, he is wise. He will allow you to see certain realities, and he will not allow you to see certain realities, but that's for your benefit, not for his benefit. Allah has no vested interest in whether you believe or you don't believe. He's testing you, and you're not testing him. Anyway. The final consequence of all of this trial and error, this examination, this test, this life, is that Allah wants to give felicity, happiness and joy and bliss to everybody. That's the divine intent. The divine intent 
for testing human beings is to offer them a place where they are not just free and happy, but they are more than content. They're in uh, eternal bliss, basically. That's the intent. So once you appreciate that this is what Allah wants, uh, then you will go about taking care of your trials and taking care of your dunya in a very good way, where you are now going not just acquiesce and not just be content, but uh, you'll go, th- go through it willingly. If you see the final goal, it's a very simple analogy to those of us who, mashallah, go through years and years of learning, education, training, hard work, internship, apprenticeship, uh, residency. Uh, well, it's a kind of a huge, gigantic burden. Maybe a, a punishment in of itself. Right. So if you were totally removed from the human society and you were looking at human societies, especially in this country, from above, and you saw all these human beings as idiots going around, waking up early in the morning, sacrificing their time, their work, their, 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 their pleasure, their meals, and they're grinding themselves and they're hitting the books, they're taking tests and they're failing and they're succeeding. All this trial, all this turmoil, Look at it from above. You'll conclude they are idiots. Why are they doing all this? <laughs> Total morons. Why are you going to study 20 hours a day and sleep two hours? Isn't that what people do? Especially in the US of A, and especially our community, mashallah. All about education. Why? Because they see the paycheck. 15 years later, you see the benefit, 15 years. Just to secure that benefit, you're willing to sacrifice 15 years, if not more, of your very precious young life. When do you do all this sacrificing for the dunya? You do it when you're young, not when you're old. Right? So in your precious time of your, your, your life, you're sacrificing something because you see an end. You see some light over there. You get the paycheck, and hopefully you live a decent, comfortable life. Allah give us all comfortable lives with barakah and hafiyah, inshallah. That's not the problem. The problem is that Islam uh, and the Quran and Sunnah and the Prophet, they're all saying the same thing. That you sacrifice this life so that you see Jannah. And Jannah is not something that's relative. It is absolute, where your success in this world is relative perhaps, and is not absolute. But for that relative and short-term gain, and the gain you get, mashallah, is what, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, however long you live. The gain with Islam and uh, believing Allah and the Rasul and going through the sacrifice of Islam, being Muslim, is a test. Muslims, unfortunately, believe that because you have Islam, you don't have problems. You say, no, because of Islam, you have problems. That's just a reality in the universe. It's just the way Allah is. That's the way he works. So Islam does not necessarily solve all your worldly problems. It does solve your eternal problems. And so you see Islam there as a test. And then you start seeing it as a ni'mah, as a rahmah, as something that you are happy to have in your life because it gives you sukoon. The ultimate destiny of human beings in this world is to enjoy life 
with peace and tranquility, sukun and sakina, as we just mentioned. So here this ayah is saying that all of this is so that Allah may allow believing men and believing women to enter the Jannah, the gardens, the paradise, uh, where rivers flow from underneath the gardens. There's a natural source of life, natural source of water and bliss and so on. Khalidina fiha. So that they live there forever. So this is what Allah wants from you and for you. So if you see this now big picture that I have to wake up for Fajr, I have to do my fast, I have to make wudu uh, without wiping over my socks, go through that mujahada also. The feeble Muslims wipe over their socks because they have no sense of following the Prophet Whatever the fiqh says, says. <laughs> I'm just talking about the whole spirit, huh? that you have a bathroom, you have water, you have a tap, huh? you have nice carpets wherever you pray, and you fail to remove your stinky socks for salat. I'm just ranting. Anyway, so you go through the life, go through the mill, test, trials, tribulations, sacrifices, this and that. You do it for your children. You do it for life, you do it for your education, you do it for your paycheck, and you do it for a nice, beautiful house, mashallah. and you do it for your nice, beautiful cars, and for prestige and honor. Allah is saying, do this for Jannah, because Jannah is permanent. Jannah is absolute bliss. Jannah is not temporary. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, through the test of Hudaybiyyah, He wants to allow the believing men, believing women, who were present at Hudaybiyyah to enter Jannah, enter paradise. And that's objective, alhamdulillah, has been met, that they are all promised Jannah, the Sahaba. So this is one reason why you see the objective. What is the consequence of your action? What's the consequence of your iman? And so on. So this is now foresightedness. This is called being a visionary. In this world, when somebody thinks 50 years ahead of his time, he's called a visionary. Allah is saying, never mind time, think beyond time. Think eternally. So you're more than a visionary. By definition, every Muslim is a visionary because he believes in Jannah. Okay? Never mind the standard of the dunya, who's a visionary, who's not. Who cares about that? You care about eternity. Where you'll be there forever. Khalidina fiha. Living there forever. And so that he may forgive your sins and your wrong deeds and your wrong doings. All of that is made in this word, sayyat. So so Allah will pardon you, Allah will expiate you, and Allah will forgive you and allow you to now become pure. You, You cannot enter Jannah if you're not pure. You have to be pure in order to be eligible for entry. That's why the Prophet ﷺ said that لا يدخل الجنة من كان في قلبه مثقال ذرة من كبر. So kibar arrogance is impurity at the lowest level. So anyone who has even a mustard seed of impurity, of kibar, of arrogance, will not enter Jannah. The Prophet ﷺ said, you can't be impure morally in order. And Jannah is a place of purity. Because you're going to live there forever, where you have no restrictions, no boundaries whatsoever. So in order for you to be eligible, you need tazkiyah. You need cleansing. 
the Reformation. So the Prophet made Tazki of the Sahaba, as the Quran says, wa that he cleans the Sahaba, he cleanses them, he removes the moral filth from them and their deficiencies. So in order to be eligible for Jannah, you have to remove all of those impurities. No impure substance can enter Jannah. Jannah is our place for impure substances because there's no urine there, period. You don't need to use a bathroom there. There will be no bathrooms there because you don't need to go there. So no impurity can touch Jannah. So in order for you to be pure, Allah says, وَيُكَفِّرَ Allah forgive all of your wrongdoings, your sins, your mistakes, your errors, your blunders, your inconsistencies, your deficiencies. Allah will make you fit to be in Jannah. So there are two ways to do that. One way is to do this in the dunya, through your effort, through your mujahada, through your niyyah. And the other way is not, God forbid, that you do it through the qabr. Uh, so that's why the Prophet said that uh, my ummah, unfortunately, most of their punishment will be in the qabr, where they will be cleansed. Hmm? So in order for you to meet Allah, you have to be pure. You can't meet Allah when you're impure. So in order for you to be eligible to meet Allah on the day of judgment, you need to be cleansed where? In the qabr. Hmm? So you got catharsis, basically. Hmm? that you're going through this process of being cleansed and becoming pure. So if you don't do it in this dunya, by removing all these ills and vices and these uh, kind of inconsistencies and deficiencies, you'll be cleaned up in the qabr. And if God forbid that doesn't help, then you'll be cleaned up on the day of judgment. As the Prophet ﷺ said, that you'll stand in front of Allah and some will be now... Uh, drowned in their perspiration up to their ankles and some up to their knees and some up to their waist and others up to their neck because that's the cleansing process. That's purging. So all these forms of punishments that you see is, is, is also rahmah if you haven't done your due diligence in this world. So you pure yourself, purify yourself here so that you're not purified over there. That's Rahman. And then eventually, God forbid, for most, inshallah, all Muslims, there will be shifa, intercession, and hopefully we'll all go into Jannah without any hisab, etc. But there will be those who will need to be cleansed in Jahannam, in the fire. So that's another process of cleansing. And then, God forbid, those who cannot be cleansed, they'll remain in Jahannam, meaning those who don't believe in Allah, those who commit shirk, etc. They'll stay there permanently because that's where they belong. Um, so now all of this, this ayah, uh, is saying to the Sahaba that Allah is going to pur- purify you before you die. This is the Bashara for the Sahaba. The Sahaba are purified in such a way that they've been tried, tested, they've been through trials, they have succeeded as a community, they have succeeded and that is the result of their love for the Prophet ﷺ in Hudaybiyah, that they did not dare or even think about rebellion or think about mutiny. They stayed with the Prophet ﷺ. They remained faithful and loyal to him. And as a result of that sacrifice, Allah is going to give them this reward in this world, not in the other world. It will start from here. So they're now the role model uh, for Muslim existence. 
and for Muslim life and lifestyle. And this, in the eyes of Allah, is a huge success, a huge, tremendous form of triumph. And uh, as I said, success. So this now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now stamping the community of the Sahaba that uh, through their trials and uh, through their fulfilling their commitment in their trials, they have earned this reward in this dunya, which is mentioned permanently in the Quran. So this now, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is now helping the Prophet by making the Sahaba almost like him. Since the Prophet is forgiven, now the Sahaba also forgiven as a result of their passing the test in Hudaybiyah. And the test in Hudaybiyah was intellectual. That they had to acquiesce to what the Prophet said and they didn't agree with it. But despite not agreeing with it, they said, okay, you are the Rasul and that's it, finish khalas. We're not going to cause a rebellion. We're not going to incite each other towards a mutiny. We're not going to now be unfaithful and then stab you in the back. So now that's how the rule is. That today in Islam, and Islamic ideology, and Islamic debates and discussions at dinner parties and fundraising parties and over the dinner table, wherever it is that you discuss Islam, this, I don't agree with this. You see, in Islamic law, I don't agree. I can't understand. I can't fathom this. I don't agree with this. You have to be careful. You don't push yourself over into Jahannam by saying, I disagree with the Prophet Why I disagree with Allah. That's your test. It's intellectual, and you have to take the test consciously and willingly, and then make sure you pass by saying, oh, I don't understand, but I submit. Submission is not easy, because the human mind is human mind. Everybody has an opinion, right? We are the masters of our own opinion, especially in this country, especially now the millennials. Everybody's the champion of their own will, their own thinking, their, their, their own intellectualization of Islam, their own you know, representation of Islam, whether it fits with Islam or not, it doesn't matter. I have my own opinion. My opinion is sacred because it's mine. You say, no, the Prophet's opinion is sacred because it's the Prophet's opinion, because it's based on wahi, which is sacred, which is divine. You, I can't say enough about you. Right? Yeah. meaning you're not the genius of all geniuses and you cannot now confront Allah and the Rasul simply because you don't understand or it doesn't make sense to you in this culture Islam doesn't have to make sense to you in the American culture in the American system Islam is not here for America Islam is here for all human beings at all places at all times so the equation is good and universal if you have discussed every other community, every other culture, and then you juxtapose that with Islam. You say it doesn't fit in the, the, the theory of Iceland. So don't they have a right to say that? It doesn't fit in the theory of Malaysia. It doesn't fit in the theory of Chile. Where does it fit? It fits in the concept of human society as a universal society, as a universal species. So you cannot you know, partialize Islam to make it representable, and well, not, not representable, but agreeable with a certain distinct culture and time and place. 
That's not the universality of Islam. That you have to include all the other variables, bring them all together on the table, and see what's the lowest common denominator. Once you do that, analyze that, then you can say, oh, this doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense to human beings. Not just the human beings of America. Now you have to be careful there. So you don't contextualize Islam and Islamic law according to the American way of life and living. Islam is not made for that. Islam is made for all human beings at all times. That obviously requires that you study this, that you have knowledge, and you study usul and usul al-fiqh, and you study Islam and the Quran, and you study civilizations, and you study history, and all of that. If you're not willing to put the work in, then just be quiet, because you don't know. Those who put the work and effort in, just as all of these professions that I mentioned, they put in 15 years, 20 years of work and effort, and at the end of that they can say, I know. Whereas now the ordinary Muslim isn't even willing to attend a simple lecture on Islam, and then they say, I know. So that's the height of ignorance, (laughs) unfortunately. Islam is not based on ignorance. Islam is based on knowledge. So make sure you know how to address an issue before you say, I disagree with it. But this Hudaybiyah, the Sahaba did not see what the Prophet saw. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not let them see what, they, what he let the Prophet see as a test. I'm testing you. See who are you loyal to. If you're loyal to the Prophet, then you will submit. And you'll go forward with it. If you're loyal to your nafs and to your tribe and to your context, then you will rebel. But no one rebelled, alhamdulillah. They all passed the test. So that's now the fruit of this discussion that it should apply to our context. And the way it applies to our context is just what I said, that in our discussions about Islam, you're welcome to discuss Islam because you're Muslim. You're not welcome to disagree with it. That's a no-no. Because then you're disagreeing with Allah, then you're disagreeing with the Rasul, which might just push you over the cliff. Unfortunately, so we have to safeguard our iman when we are talking about Islam and not to assume that we are the genius of all geniuses uh, and then assume that we can make a, uh, you know, our own sensible conclusion about things. You can, but you might just pay for it. Keep us in Islam, allow us to love Islam and then allow us to understand Islam also in such a way that we are allowed to enter Jannah. Ameen ya Rabbil Alameen. Jazakumullah khayr. Subhanallah bihamdi. Subhanakallah bihamdi. Nashadu Allah ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka. Subhanallah.